0: Good morning. Yeah, today is Juneteenth, and if you don't know much about Juneteenth, it's a federal holiday that has a deep, long tradition in black culture, and it celebrates and commemorates June 19th, 1865, where some of the last holdings of slaves within our country, particularly in Texas, got to hear an announcement of that proclamation that slaves were now free. And since then has begun to be a day of celebration. And so we honor that today because our God is a God of freedom who sets the captives free. So we're going to do something that the slave church was really good at early on and continue to history in throughout all of African American churches in our country, which is we're going to cry out to God in prayer, the God who sets the captives free, celebrate him and ask him to lead us today. So Let us all now together pray. God, we thank you that you are the God of the Exodus. You're the God who hears the cries of the oppressed. You're the God who comes down to act and liberate the oppressed. You are so good. You're so faithful to save Jesus, and you continue to do it again and again, and we celebrate where you have brought liberation and you have set the captives free in our culture And God, we cannot wait for the day where you will do so in the fullest sense in the final day of judgment. We ask now that you would speak through your scriptures, that you would speak through me, that your people might hear and might be able to go out and live their lives, Jesus, in response to your good news. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to continue in... uh, Colossians today, in Colossians chapter four, it is the final day of our series of Colossians. Ooh. And to kick off, ah, yeah, we did it. We got through the whole book. I want to tell you guys about uh, the most expensive wedding throne based off of Guinness Book of World Records, $55 million. Yeah, Venetia Mittal and Amit Bhatia. So the daughter was one of the daughters of one of the most top five richest men in the world at that time. This was in the early 2000s. So here's how it went down. They had six days of celebration and partying. 1,000 guests who were all ushered into France on private jets. Yeah. So they showed up and they had reenactments of their engagement like they staged it for everyone to see. And they did it in the Palace of Versailles in France, which had never at that point had a public event happen there. Um, they then went on for days of partying until finally they did uh, the ceremony in the 17th century Chateau va le for the wedding. And they had some of the biggest names in Bollywood performing and celebration on celebration. And then Bam, $55 million later, they got married. 10 years later, they got divorced. I know. So in contrast, (laughs) Lexi's grandfather, I asked him how they got married and to tell me about their wedding. And he goes, well, when we were 18, I went down to the courthouse, I bought a certificate, and we got married, best $5 I ever spent. And they uh, now, going into their 90s, are still married, can still have pictures of them sitting on each other's laps, loving one another faithfully, and are the core and center of their whole family culture. You know, you you hear stories like this, and what it shows us is that the way you finish something is far more important than how you start something. So just a little side advice for those of you engaged or thinking about getting married— Think about the amount of hours that you put into wedding planning. How many hours are you putting into marriage preparation? Because it is not so important how you begin something. The end of something is far more important than the beginning. How you go on to live something out far outweighs the idealistic vision that you had of it at the beginning. Today, we come to the end of the book of Colossians. At the beginning of Colossians, we had some of the most extravagant, idealistic visions of Christ Jesus that probably is in the entire Bible. Paul is just poetically going on and on about how Jesus is above everything and is everything, and he is doing the poetical, uh, poetic equivalent of a $55 million wedding. <laughs> the question is though, because as we come to the end of this letter, The people who received the letter, was this anything more to them than just this idealistic hype moment, religious hype moment where they could feel inspired and encouraged, but then they go on to live it out and there really is nothing to it? Is Colossians going to give us anything more than a couple of Sundays where the preachers get up and encourage us and make us feel hyped? but then we go out and live our lives, will it give anything for us to actually live into this story so that we might run the race well, we might finish while well? Paul began the book of Colossians and he said, I'm praying that you would live in a manner worthy of this big gospel. I think if we pay attention to these final moments of the book of Colossians, it's actually gonna give us that. Far more than just a moment of encouragement because it doesn't matter how good at preaching or encouraging I am on this Sunday moment, you have to get in your cars, drive home, go be with your families, get up Monday morning and live out the gospel. And none of your pastors are gonna be there. (laughs) So will this give us enough? I think it will. I think if we pay attention, we're gonna see some of the things that I really want us to hear instead of skimming through to the very end. So how are we going to do that? How are we gonna faithfully live out this gospel message? Chapter four, verse two, continue steadfastly in prayer. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving and at the same time, pray also for us that God may open up us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. The letter of Colossians began with prayer. It's gonna finish with prayer. This is bread and butter of Paul's ministry to the Colossian church. And it's gonna be the secret that he's gonna teach them on how they join into the ministry of the gospel. How are they going to join into the story of God, this grand, cosmic, really out there beautiful story of Jesus reconciling all of creation? How does the average person actually get to take part in that? Pray. Prayer is the thing that he commands this young church to do as a way to step in. But I mean, it's really not gonna be something that surprising for a pastor to get up on a Sunday and tell you what you're supposed to do in response to the scriptures, pray. So it's the particularities that I want us to pay attention to. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Literally, the word is to persist obstinately in prayer. Think stubborn defiance if you go back in the Old Testament of Jacob wrestling God and literally the angel like breaks his hip out of the socket and then says like, why are you still holding on to me? And Jacob goes, until you bless me, I will not let you go. That's the attitude of prayer that God's people are to have. That's the attitude of prayer. He tells this young church to have, to persist in prayer. Jesus told his followers to pray like, and then he gives the parable, the persistent widow who never stops pestering the judge to never give up in prayer. He says, being watchful in prayer, being watchful in it, it's, it's an alert type of prayer. It's not a type of prayer that will pray and then kind of forget about what you actually asked God, which is often what I find that we do in prayer. We throw out prayers to God asking for something, but then we really don't have much of a way to track of what we ask God, and so then we treat prayer as if it was disposable utensils that came with your takeout. You use it, it was good, and then you toss it away, and you don't keep track of it, and it really doesn't matter after that. So how do we keep track of whether God is faithful to answer his people's cries if we don't even remember what we prayed for a couple of weeks ago? God is faithful to answer his people crying out to him. That's the main power force of how the good news goes out. It's the main way that the kingdom comes on earth. But if we don't have any alertness in our prayer, we're gonna miss out. And so Jesus tells his disciples don't fall asleep in prayer. And that's what Paul has here in mind. Be alert, Colossians, in the prayer. And this is, uh, I saw a good example of this in uh, in my wife. She does this really well. She has had a couple of moments over this last year where she's done some crazy things that make me go like, oh, I wouldn't pray like that, but... And then I get shown up, and it was really cool. Like, for example, we had had something crazy happen. Uh, it, we were waiting on uh, some results for our son this last week. And the doctor is supposed to call us about our son to let us know, like, how his sleep study went, whether or not if he's on oxygen or not anymore. And Tuesday, they said that they would call back. And then it's, and they said, 4.30, we'll call back. And if we don't call back by then, we'll just, you guys got to track us down kind of deal. And I was like, ah, they're never going to call. 4.30 comes around. Me and Lexi are at the house with their parents. And I'm like, yeah, we missed our shot. I'm going to have to track them down tomorrow. It's going to be a nightmare. And Lexi goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to pray that they'll call back right now and give us good news. I'm like, babe, it's 4.35. It's past the time when their office is even open anymore. And then my phone rings and I'm like, ah, like terrified. And it's the doctor, and they call and give us good news that like Asher's off oxygen, he's good to go. And we're like losing our mind. Yes, super excited. That was that was my start to my first Father's Day weekend. So I was pretty hyped about that one. Um, but it, it it's a type of prayer that asks God for tangible things, then put a date on it. See what he does. It's risky, I know, because what we risk is what if God doesn't show up and what if he doesn't do it? Which is why we often avoid that type of prayer. But Paul calls this young church and we are called to pray in a way where we ask God to show up in specific ways and then we watch and we wait and we go like, I'm waiting. That's what kids do to parents, right? They don't ask you for something and then they're like, let me know if you get around to it. Like they stand right there and they're like, can we get ice cream? Can we get ice cream? Can we get ice cream? Until you give them an answer right then and there. Even if you tell them no, they're like, all right, well, what about cake? (laughs) That is how we are to pray to our heavenly father. A persistence that doesn't give up that gets in God's face lovingly with like, you told me to pray like this, that keeps account of what you've asked for of God and then waits on him to do it. And lastly, it's prayer that is missional. You see here that Paul, he's still in prison. Paul's already gotten broken out of prison by angels. How is he not just telling him like, hey, you know, it'd be nice, just pray that the angel thing would happen again and I get out of prison. Instead, he prays that God may open a door for the word. Prayer is to be missional. It is to be centered on, grounded in what God is doing in this world, which is why Paul's not praying to get out of prison. He knows how awesome it is that the gospel is going out in the prison that he keeps getting put in. He's like, man, all these guys guys get saved who get chained up next to me. So I'm not gonna pray for you to get me out of this mess. It seems like it's going really good. Keep praying that God would open up the door for this good news message. This is why I think a lot of us get bored with prayer. We pray, God, can you help me with this? God, could you accomplish this? God, I would like this. And I'm not, there's nothing wrong with those types of prayers. I want you to pray when you lost your keys. Because God's a heavenly Father who cares about the small things. But if you are thinking about your prayer life and find that there's really just no risk or excitement in it, it's because our prayer is not grounded in the mission of God reaching out and redeeming lives all over the world. Pray into the mission of God. Now, I could say, pray more on a Sunday. Every single one in here is like, yes, I should pray more. That sounds really beautiful to have that type of prayer. And, and you might hear that even too and be like, man, I, I wish I should, I should be praying more. And even find yourself kind of going into this type of like guilt. But that's not how this, this calling works because he tells them, how to do this prayer and what actually gets this prayer going. He says, "You're being watchful in it. With what? Thanksgiving. That is the key to this type of prayer. Thanksgiving. They are to continue in steadfast prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. What are they to be thankful for? The same thing that Paul has been thankful for throughout the entire message of Colossians. He basically, if you want to know what the book of Colossians is about, it is Paul drolling on and on again about, here's the gospel. Here's how you live in light of that gospel. Here's the gospel again. Here's how you live in light of the gospel. Here's the gospel again. He is thankful at its root because of what Jesus has done in this world which is a bit of a contrast to how we think about Thanksgiving in our culture. Thanksgiving in our culture is, let me look at the list of things that I have, and let me feel warm, fuzzy feelings about the ones that I do have. It's a Thanksgiving dinner type moment. But that's not how Thanksgiving works, at least in Paul's mind. He is thanking God from the bottom of a prison. Why? Because God has given him something, pulled him into something that is so much bigger than what his circumstances are that he can celebrate and be overwhelmed with gratitude. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. The fact that he is just some random guy that gets pulled into this beautiful story of God changing the world and rescuing people, giving them new identities and new names and bringing them into the family of God, that is something to be grateful for. And if we're not grateful for it, we are to tell ourselves again and again, Thanksgiving is an act of sacrifice. You don't do it when you're like, ah, I feel really good and feel. You do it as a way to remind yourself of the good news. So if prayer is this type of force, this engine that drives forward the mission of God, which it is, thanksgiving for the gospel and what Jesus has done is the gasoline. If prayer is that way that we see God's kingdom come on earth and the driving force behind it, then praying and thanksgiving is the gas. Last week, we heard Josh teach about how to live out this revolutionary style family of God in all these different areas, and him going right into prayer of thanksgiving is his way of saying, here's how you do this, thanksgiving in prayer. It's kind of like like a sports car, which I told the earlier service I don't know anything about, nor do I have, nor do I have any desire to. But from what I've heard, and then some people confirmed with me, sports cars, race cars drive on higher octane fuel, premium fuel, right? So what happens if you take a sports car, you drive it into the pump and you realize gas is really expensive, so you just try to do the low octane fuel, which most of us normally are just doing. Well, the car then is gonna drive, but it's gonna drive really clunky. And it's not gonna perform well at all. It it might get the job done in the moment, but it's also not gonna bring any longevity to that car and that engine. That's, prayers like that sports car, and you got a couple of things you might try to put in the tank to get it going that just ain't gonna work as well. The first one is religious duty. I should pray because I should pray. And that's what Christians do. I don't want to dig on this too much in the sense of that that will get you going. And there is a sense of praying out of obedience that we should do. But that is like putting low octane fuel in the tank. It's going to get the car going, but it's not going to be driving with any kind of force or power or excitement or delight, because what's supposed to go into the gas tank is thanksgiving that God would ever include people like you and me into his story. That's what drives our prayers forward. That's what gets them started and going and revved up. So that can't really get us going further. The other option is you can try to put into the gas tank of prayer just necessity, which is why a lot of us pray desperately when something horrible happens. And that is the appropriate response to things horrible happening. You cry out to the God who can intervene but that's kind of like filling up the tank sporadically in your car because gas is really expensive, which is what I'm doing lately. (laughs) And you're just like really like getting as close to the E as you possibly can. But what happens is instead of me thinking like, I'm going to take it for a drive. I'm like, maybe I'll just go on a bike ride instead because the gas tank isn't filled up It's only got enough gas to get through that moment. Are you tracking with me? When you pray as a response out of desperation and you're forced to pray because of the circumstances out of your life and you cry out to the God who can intervene, good, good. But it's like only filling up enough gas in the tank to get you just a little farther. What Paul has in mind in the spirit of God for our lives is that we would have a full tank, We could just drive around with the foot down all day long excited because the thing that fills up our prayers is gratitude that you and I, regular people, have been brought into a new family and that new family is gonna inherit the world and that is because Jesus died to make that new family, amen? That is how we are to drive forward prayer with Thanksgiving and something that I'll just just challenge you guys to try. Go home today or sometime this week set aside 10 minutes, put it on your timer, just start 10 minutes, start praying. Thank God for what he has done. And I'm talking big picture in the biblical story. Thank him for Jesus, the cross, for who he is, what he's done, like thank him for everything as big as you can think of. And then when you're done with that, thank God for all that he is doing in the community in the history of the church, in the people around you that are Christians that follow, in the people who mentored you. Thank him in the communal sense of the gospel. And then lastly, thank God for what you have been brought into, how you got included into this beautiful and grand story and how God knows your name and it is in the book of life. 10 minutes go by, the alarm goes off. You can then pray for whatever you want to, but what I will guarantee is that by the time you get to the end of the 10 minutes, your list of requests is going to get a lot smaller. Because that type of gratitude for what we actually have in Jesus that drives prayer forward in a sense that is persistent and alert watching God and is missionally focused. How are they to live out this good news about Jesus? they are to jump into the story of God redeeming all of the world. How do they actually do that? They pray. It begins with prayer. Prayer that is rooted in gratitude for what God has done in Jesus. Something that Paul has been saying from the beginning of the letter when he opened it to pray for them who he is writing to. He is always praying for them. But part of what he is praying for them is that they would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And now again, he ends his letter by telling them how it is that they are to walk. He says, walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. How are they to relate to those outside of the faith? when they get done reading this letter by Paul and they're excited and they have their worship session and take communion together as Christians in the first century and they pack everything up and then Monday hits and some of those first century Christians, they got to drive over to Intel and do their job (laughs) or they got to get up in the morning and after hearing that beautiful message, three of the babies are crying for this first time mom. How are those people to live out and walk in the way of Jesus. How are they to participate? He tells them, walk in wisdom. Paul commands them to walk in wisdom, to live their lives in such a way that it is going to match the message that he is preaching to them. To make the best use of the time because it's focused not just on living in such a way that would earn the gospel, it's living in a way that looks like the gospel. Why? Because they're on display for the world to watch towards outsiders making the best use of the time, we often focus on what we have been saved from. Saved from sin, Satan, death, our old life to our new life, what we, Jesus has saved us from. We don't often focus on what Jesus has saved us for. What is your salvation for? Think about it. You became a Christian, for those of you that would claim Christ, why didn't Jesus just zap you up into heaven in that moment? He saved you. You believe you are a part of the family of God. Now, psst, you're back up in heaven. And he's like, good job. You made it. Best of luck to everybody else. Why not do it that way? Because you were saved, not just from those things, but saved for a life of showing the world what the gospel looks like, what Jesus looks like. We were saved to walk in a manner of wisdom so that outsiders would watch and go, wait, why do you live like that? So that more family members would be added. What does Paul mean by wisdom? Because in our culture, that's like good advice for what you should do based off of what you see and know. But Paul, if you remember, is a Jew He's got a long tradition of the Old Testament versions of wisdom. And in the Old Testament, wisdom was creational. I mean, the closest akin to what we have today would be the laws of physics. We just know that if you walk off the edge of a building, bad things will happen because gravity. There's no like, it doesn't matter what your opinions are about gravity. You walk off the edge of the building, it's happening. It's happening because that's how the world works. Gravity. Well, for a Jewish mindset, the same thing is for Sabbath rest. If you break the Sabbath, you're going to notice in the same way walking off a building, you'll notice gravity. You just might not notice immediately in the same way. But that's how God designed the world. If you are unfaithful to your wife Proverbs tells you, it's going to wreck everything around you. Why? Because that's the law of the world. Faithfulness is how God made the world. So when he says wisdom, he's talking about that wisdom, but then he's also seeing it through the lens of Jesus who lived out and embodied wisdom to the full, which is why you hear Jesus teaching and he goes, you heard it said, but I say, and then he would up the ante and in the most beautiful, extravagant way, teach us what the kingdom lived out looks like. Jesus is wisdom. When he tells us to walk in wisdom, what he is saying is to walk in your life, what it would look like for Jesus to walk in your life. It's taking the teachings of Jesus and going to as extreme and creative extent as we possibly can in obedience, living it out in a way that everyone could watch and be like, why? Why are you living that way? And the, the church has a long, beautiful history of what this looks like in the most amazing way. For example, when I went to Italy, I got a chance to go there on my honeymoon, and we got a chance to stop by in Rome. There's a really famous spot there called the Roman Catacombs, and it's a giant, mass, multi story underground grave of Christians and their family burial sites, and that's where they used to do church. And when we were walking through there, you would see these really beautiful openings where like a whole family would have been buried with these frescoes of Jesus and moments from the Sermon on the Mount and his teaching. And then I noticed that there would be these tiny little like this big holes with like some type of Latin name on it. And they would be in there with the family. And I would ask one of the tour guides, what is this? And she began to explain, well... In the first century, it was pretty common for the Roman families to toss away infants that they did not want and abandon. And what the Christians did, because remember, they didn't have power to go on then and protest. So what they did is they would go find these baby infants who had already died, and they would take them in and they would name them. And then they would name them as a member of their family and pay to have them buried with their family. I mean, imagine like back then, first century, like Roman Johnny is trying to figure out why Christian Susie' is family is spending all this money and time to take care of an infant that somebody just discarded. Well, Johnny, it's because I too was an orphan and Jesus rescued me. And I in sin had nothing but death and no name, but Jesus brought me in and washed me with his blood and he renamed me and put me into the family of God. So of course we take in these babies. Tell me that the people watching then were like, what? Tell me why. This is one of the few places that we get explicitly in the New Testament, how we are to do what we would call evangelism. You got one other part in First Peter. Both of them have just kind of an interesting flip where the assumption is not that you go out and talk about your faith, but you're living in such a bizarre, attractional, interesting way that you have to be ready to give an answer for why. Like that is the calling that the New Testament envisions for the church. I mean, could you imagine if we were to do the similar type of thing today? This is kind of like a extreme example, but like, can you imagine instead of doing the protests, if Christians at the front of the abortion clickings went into the back and said, we will receive any of the remains and we're going to buy plots to bury them with our family. Could you imagine the news? Like people would be like, why are you doing this? Jesus those are extreme examples and 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 another beautiful one that i that i had learned of is the moravian church a group of german missionaries so dedicated to seeing the gospel go out towards the african continent that when they saw these african slaves get sold in the transatlantic slave trade they asked the slave traders if they could come on the boats with them so they could preach the gospel and when they refused they sold themselves into slavery so that they could get, tell me that didn't start some conversations. <laughs> Why are you here? Jesus. Now I could tell these examples, we could hear it, and it can immediately bring a level of like, dang, well, yeah, what do I do? And, and honestly, for me, this passage is a lot more uncomfortable for me than if it said, hey, tell Jesus about your faith and get really good apologetics so you can learn how to start the conversation. Because then I could look at that and go, you know what, I did it, I didn't do it. But here now, if we read that, it demands the question which I am fully uncomfortable with, which is, if nobody is asking about my faith and why I'm so crazy (laughs) in a good way, am I walking in the way of wisdom? Am I walking in the way of Jesus? Now we could hear that. It creates a sense of tension for all of us, I know. And then what we can do with it is then feel guilty. Dang, am I not living this out? But there's a totally different perspective in here that's assumed in Paul's teaching that we miss. We all think of how I am praying how I am walking this out in wisdom, how I am being a Christian that looks like Jesus. But for them, it's we. The witness is the church. They pray together. They bring each other in to prayer. They walk out in wisdom as a community. And that is one of the last things that we will see from this message in the book of Colossians is that what we need is not just to pray in thanksgiving and to walk in wisdom, but we need to belong together. This is the part right here in verses seven through 18 that we are tempted to skip over. If you got it in your Bible reading plan, you get to the end of chapter four, you're like a bunch of names, great, skip that, move on to the next day. But what we have here is a clue into how they thought about participating in the kingdom of God. Paul gives his final greetings and he goes, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that we may encourage your hearts and with Onesimus, our faithful, beloved brother. Then you got some things about Aristarchus and Mark and Barnabas, Jesus, which he reminds us is not Jesus, Jesus, but Jesus who's called Justice, just in case you didn't know. And then he tells him again about Epaphras who's still praying for them in verse 12. And then he tells him about Luke, the beloved physician and Demas. And then he says, tell everybody in Laodicea, I said hi. And then he talks about Nymph and then also talks about Archippus. Hey, see to it, that you fulfilled the Lord. We hear these names and we're like, I don't know who these people are, but they did. They knew who these people, these were brothers and sisters in the family. They did it together. You know what this passage kind of reads like? The rolling credits at the end of a movie. When was the last time you guys sat through the rolling credits of a movie? And you can't say a Marvel movie because they cheat and they put something at the end of it to make you stick around to the end. (laughs) We don't sit through the credits. It's not like our favorite part unless we start getting a conversation with somebody else. But now I want you to imagine something else. What if you were a person belonging to the costume and set design of a movie and you were watching that movie on opening week? Do you sit around through the credits? Yes. What do you do in the credits? You celebrate in the credits. What if you're sitting next to all your other costume designers that you've been striving together to make this happen with? You are elated and celebratory to have this list of names. And what we see in this list of names, which is so beautiful, we have slaves in the list of names. We got regular people in the list of names. We got apostles and we got regular church leaders. We got people's names that we don't even know how they got on here and what they were doing. We got Jews and Gentiles, people from all over the world and they're all on this list in the same family. They belong together because they are participating in this as something that is something done by family. This part of the letter snaps us into the reality that this was a real letter Handed around to real people who had real lives. This was a family business. Christianity is not something you can do alone. And I know as an American, we hear that and we go, no. (laughs) you cannot be a Christian and obey all of the commands of the New Testament for one another's without one another's which is why when we hear these passages, we can get discouraged or I don't know what to do. You pray, but you pray together. If you're not feeling thankful, you need a brother or a sister to remind you of what God has done in you. If you don't know how to walk out in wisdom, what it looks like to live out the gospel when you go to your normal day job or when you're interacting with the people that you serve with at the restaurant, you need the body of believers together to think through that and have wisdom through that. And this is how the gospel has gone out through. It's never been one person. It's been the whole community. That's where the power is. But we so easily and quickly can get pulled into this, my faith kind of thing. And and where I realize in my own life that I find in this is I can go through all the motions and then we go to one of our elder retreats a couple of weeks ago, and one of the guys threw out there, like, how is your life going with friendships? And I was like, ugh. I, I can get through most of my week without realizing that I have not been a good friend. We need to do this together. We belong together. So as we respond today, and I'll invite the band up. We're gonna worship We do communion every single week. There is an intentionality behind that. Communion is something that symbolizes the unity of the believers early church called it like the healing balm that could restore relationships within the church. It's where we all together come up and we take the bread and we take the wine, we eat and we drink. And it's a reminder, of course, of what Jesus has done. But it's a unifier because we all are saying, I need this. You too, me too. We need this. This is what binds us Together. That's why the stage we've tried to lower it here. And if anything, there should be like another stage, and that's where the bread and the wine should be. But then you couldn't get it. So that wouldn't be very convenient. So what I want us to do is I'm gonna invite us into prayer. And I want to I want to give you a chance to just begin to dream and to ask the Holy Spirit of what it might look like to walk out life in wisdom together. So go ahead, close your eyes for just a few moments. This is something that no matter how creative I am, I cannot do it for you. This is something we do together. So sit and ask, God, how might I better walk out the life of Jesus in my life? And as you're doing that, take a moment to ask, who might I do that with that is a fellow brother or sister? And in your final moments, and even as you go into prayer, may your prayers be nothing but thanksgiving today for how God has included you into this big and beautiful good message about Jesus. Amen.